Oh my god, what's that? Dude, no, oh my god. Oh my god. It's It's the Horror Comedy Podcast with Jake and Haley. Welcome back to the Horror Comedy Podcast. Folks, it is the summer of Serving Country 3, and I will be your hostess today. My name is Haley, and this is the only podcast where I, a notorious bisexual, try to scare you, a loyal listener, by getting you super stoned and telling you a true, scary story. I know what you're thinking. Where's Jake? And that's also what I'm thinking. If anybody sees him around, I guess let me know. Um, and I have some more bad news, which is that I'm also not smoking weed today. I do have a cart, though. My air conditioner is broken. It's approximately 900 degrees in my house and the landlord will be here soon to fix the problem so i am not partaking if you're out there toking please take another hit from me love you so much from 1975 to 1977 a study was conducted in manitoba canada in the town of dauphin the entire town of dauphin was given a universal base income in 1971 the income was about $25,000, and by 76, it was 39000 Somehow, giving people free money got expensive really fast, and in 1976, the project was abandoned due to lack of funds, and that left the data to sit on a shelf unanalyzed. In 2020, the data was finally looked at by two scientists named David Kalnitsky and Pilar Gonalans Pons. They looked at the crime rates in the Dauphin area, as well as the information from the census of towns nearby to get a clear picture of the crime rates before and after universal base income hit Dauphin. Before UBI, Dauphin averaged 600 crimes per 100,000 people. After UBI, that number dropped almost in half to 350 per 100,000 people. I mean, that makes sense, right? Because if you're hungry and you have nothing, you have nothing to lose if you get caught stealing food. Poverty can certainly drive people to desperate places. I got caught shoplifting once. (laughs) I was 16. I worked at a Wendy's. I had just got my period, and back then my period was super bad. I know I'm always talking about my period on here. I'm so sorry, but I needed underwear and I needed menstrual products. And it was my dad's birthday, and I needed a card. I did have some money, but I only made $7.50 an hour, and I had to decide between spending all of my money and what I needed, or just stealing it. And because I was desperate, I chose to steal. What are the limits on desperation? Could it drive someone insane? Could it make someone really, really vulnerable to crime? If you do one crime out of distress, would you do a worse crime to cover up your original crime? Talking with my hands here, people, I'm slapping my desk. I'm so sorry. Get in the time machine, y'all, because we're going back to try to find out. All right, we're in Montella. Okay, all right, listen. M-O-N-T-E-L-L-A. Montella. That's how I'm going to say it. It's in the province of Avellino, Avellino, whatever. And that's in the country of Italy. We're going to the year 1893. I do have a picture of a modern day Montella to give you an idea. Damn, now I just said it the other way. Oh, well. In the late 1800s, this would have been a very remote farmland. April 18th, 1894. A baby was born into a mother's loving arms. The mother, Maria, held her baby girl in her arms and whispered, 
We are going to for sure marry you off for a huge dowry as soon as you're old enough. And then she gave her a smooch and named her Leonarda. Leonarda Chanchuli was raised by her parents on the rural farmland of Montella, which at the time belonged to the Kingdom of Italy. Her childhood super duper sucked. We don't know exactly what happened, but we do know that Leonardo tried to kill herself two times as a child. So it was very, very bad. Growing up, Maria would brag about her plans to marry Leonardo off for a large dowry. It hung heavy over Leonardo's head. One time, Leonardo ran into a fortune teller. Leonardo was dying to know if she would marry, if it would be for love or for money, and if she'd be a mother one day. The fortune teller told her, You will marry and have children, but all your children will die. The fortune haunted Leonardo. She tried to forget about it and stay focused on finding her true love. She later in life visited a Romani palm reader. She said, In your right hand, I see prison. In your left, a criminal asylum. Okay. I'd be like, can I get a refund? <laughs> like, um, that's like a really awkward time to be told like, oh, you're definitely going to jail, bitch, or maybe the loony bin. Whew. I read differing accounts of the dates here, so we're going to combine them and we're going to say that Leonardo met Raphael Pensardi in 1914 and they married in 1917. This absolutely wrecked Leonardo's mother, who had planned to find a husband and marry Leonardo off. She would have got a dowry if she arranged a marriage, and Leonardo finding her own man was taking food directly out of Maria's mouth. Maria was furious at Leonardo. The anger burned in her chest and tied a knot in her throat. She was so full of fury that she couldn't sleep at night. To unburden herself from her seething, she conjured all of her rage into a curse which she placed upon Leonardo and Raphael. Your marriage will be nothing but strife. Your children will not survive. Anything that brings you comfort will begin to rot as soon as you find it. Maria's words shook Leonardo to her core. It seems that they went no contact after that. Timeless, okay? Raph and Leonardo lived pretty happily. Pick a number between one and four. That's how many kids they have at this point. In 1921, Leonardo and Raphael Pensardi moved to Raph's hometown of Lauria, where Leonardo became pregnant again. Times were hard. The family could barely afford candles to light their home, and they would go long stretches without access to food. This led to Leonardo miscarrying her baby. Leonardo was broken. What the fortune teller warned her of was coming true before her eyes. The curse placed upon her family was now reigning over them. And the most painful part was that it could have been avoided if Leonardo and Raph were not so poor. Ugh, I just got chills. <laughs> Years of struggle went by. One of Leonardo's sons died, presumably again from preventable causes, which Leonardo couldn't afford to help him with. In 1927, Leonardo was busted for fraud, which I am so fucking curious. If anybody knows, please tell me, how could you possibly commit fraud in 1927? Like, you just lie, right? Like, you go to the bank, you say, like, oh, man, I am rich, uh, but there's no bank. Hold on. Wait, it wouldn't be the bank. I don't know. Like, how would you? <laughs> you'd go, okay, here, you'd go to the market. You'd say, 
I have so much money, but it's in public bonds because they had that back then. They had public bonds. And like, so I'm just waiting for that to come through. So like, if you give me this cow or whatever, I got you plus interest like next week. I'm sure that that's probably it. It's probably something like that. Leonardo was sent to jail and she served three years. While there, two more of her kids died. So everything is coming true. It's all happening, to quote Almost Famous. In 1930, Leonardo came home. The couple got busy, ay, and Leonardo was soon pregnant again. They were trying to 3D print replacements for the ones that they lost, I guess. That's incredibly insensitive, and I'm sorry I made that joke. They moved to Lacedonia, where Leonardo miscarried again, bro. Later that year, an earthquake hit, and it destroyed their home. The family had more children, and then they moved to Corrigio, where she opened a shop. Leonardo had successfully outrun her unfortunate past for now. She became very well-respected and popular in the community. She even started to tell people's fortunes, and she had a tarot deck that she would use to help people get answers, and people would pay her for that service. Now, here's grim trivia. Would you like to guess how many times parasocial girlies the Pansardis got pregnant? Did you make your guess? 17, bro. 17 pregnancies. Three of those were miscarriages. Ten of them died in childhood. So by 1939, Leonardo and Raph had only four living children left. The words of the fortune teller played on repeat in her head. You will marry and have children, but all your children will die. The curse her mother put on her family repeated over and over again. Your marriage will be nothing but strife. Your children will not survive. Anything that brings you comfort will begin to rot as soon as you find it. It tortured Leonardo. How could she keep her last four children, especially her favorite and oldest son, Giuseppe, how could she keep them alive? There was nothing she wouldn't give. There was no sacrifice too great. In 1939, Giuseppe told her that he'd be joining the Italian Royal Army to fight in World War II. Her heart sank. She felt like she couldn't breathe. She collapsed to her knees and begged him not to go. But she could not change his mind. Leonardo couldn't sleep for days. How could she protect her Giuseppe? There was nothing she wouldn't give. There was no sacrifice too great. <gasps> oh my God, that's it, she thought. Sacrifice. For the first time in a long time, an eerie calm settled in Leonardo's mind. She had her answer. She would make a sacrifice. As many as it took. She fell asleep that night with a smile on her face. The next day, while at the market, Leonardo laid eyes on Faustina Setti. Faustina was a 50-year-old woman. She was a spinster. <laughs> that just means you don't have a husband, you don't have kids. She was lonely, and everybody in the town knew she was starting to panic that she'd die alone. She had come to Leonardo for readings before. So Leonardo approached Faustina and told her discreetly that the cards had something new in store for her and to come to her house the next day. So the next morning, Faustina knocked on Leonardo's door. Leonardo said, It'll cost you for this reading, babe. 30,000 liar. 
I was having a really hard time finding what that would be adjusted for inflation. The only thing I could find is that one liar equals $325. So this makes me feel like it's a ridiculous amount of money, but I'm sure that's not right. (laughs) It didn't bother Faustina because she would have given anything. And that's a sentiment that Leonardo knew all too well. Leonardo told Faustina she had a man who wanted to run away with Faustina. She said the man was married, so Faustina could tell no one. The two would run off and start a new life together where he would marry Faustina somewhere far away. Faustina and Leonardo picked a day for Faustina to meet her new boo. The day came, and Faustina knocked again on Leonardo's door. She let her in, and the two women spoke excitedly. Leonardo fixed Faustina a glass of wine, which she had spiked. Leonardo confirmed that Faustina told no one of her departure, and she suggested that Faustina write goodbye letters to them to let them know she had run off to be married and not to worry about her. And she said that she would distribute these to all of Faustina's friends and families after she leaves so that they can't stop her or anything, you know? Faustina agreed and she wrote postcards and letters to her loved ones saying, hey, I fell in love. I ran off. I'm, I'm fine. You're not going to hear from me again, most likely, but don't worry about that. Minutes after finishing her glass of wine, Faustina collapsed face first onto the table. Leonardo dragged Faustina off of the chair and let her thump her head harshly onto the ground. Leonardo dragged every limp pound of Faustina through the house, across the floor, and into a large, empty closet. Then she went and fetched her hatchet. She dug through Faustina's clothes and took whatever else, whatever other valuables she had on her. Then, she chopped Faustina up into nine pieces. Leonardo fired up her wood-burning stove. She set four big kettles on the burners. And I'll let Leonardo's own words tell you what she did next. I threw the pieces into a pot, added seven kilos of caustic soda, which I had bought to make soap, and I stirred the whole mixture until the pieces dissolved into a thick, dark mush that I poured into several buckets and emptied into a nearby septic tank. As for the blood in the basin, I waited until it coagulated, dried it in the oven, ground it and mixed it with flour, sugar, chocolate, milk and eggs, as well as a bit of margarine, kneading all the ingredients together. I made lots of crunchy tea cakes, and I served them to the ladies who came to visit, though Giuseppe and I also ate them. I'm not going to lie, that kind of gave me a stomachache. Like, I don't know if it was just, like, saying those words (laughs) together, (laughs) or, like, the idea of, like, being fed someone and you don't know it. Um, or I don't know if it's the idea that I could be chopped up into nine pieces and someone could melt me into a dark mush, which they flush, essentially. Like, I don't know what it is about this, but something about this is making me feel sick. <laughs> she sent off the letters and postcards strategically. She spaced them out so that it seemed like Faustina had sent them throughout her travels. Nobody knew anything was wrong. But Leonardo's looming anxiety about the death of her son Giuseppe did not go away. She did not feel the job was done. As she went about her business, she kept an eye open for her next sacrifice. In 1940, Leonardo met Francesca Salvi. Francesca was destitute and wanted a job badly. 
Leonarda promised her she could get her somewhere that would offer her room and board as well as a good income. Leonarda told Francesca to be at a certain meeting place on September 5th, 1940, but to come and say goodbye to her first. September 5th, 1940 came, and Francesca knocked on Leonardo's doors with tears in her eyes because she was so grateful for the opportunity to have a home and work her way out of poverty. They sat together and had coffee. Leonardo convinced Francesca to write postcards saying goodbye to her friends. She suggested that Francesca not include the name of the monastery she'd be staying and working at to avoid anyone sabotaging her new life. Francesca sat happily writing her goodbyes until she passed out face first onto the table from the spiked coffee. Interestingly, Leonardo did not give a lot of details about this murder or what she did with Francesca after the murder. And I guess she was a bit more careful this go around because the evidence wasn't as obvious. We do know that she took 3,000 lire from Francesca's body. A few weeks later, Leonardo met 53-year-old Virginia Cacioapo. Virginia used to be a starlet, for lack of a better word. At the time, she had sung famous operas. She had a large wealth of jewels and bonds, a bunch of high-quality clothes and shoes. (sighs) But her voice became less powerful with age, and she was forced out of opera singing and into the remote town of Correggio. Virginia had only memories of the days where everybody loved her. Leonardo could smell Virginia's longing to be loved like a shark smells blood in the water. She knew she had her target. She told Virginia that she had a friend who owned a theater in Florence and asked if Virginia could keep a secret. See, her friend who owned the theater wanted to fire his secretary. He was looking for somebody who knew about opera, someone who had experience dealing with the finer things in life and fancy crowds of people, someone who could be discreet, because if the secretary found out she was being replaced, she'd burn that whole building down. The plan was to fire the secretary and escort her out and then bring Virginia in literally right behind her to take over. There could be no lapse. So if Virginia wanted this chance, she'd have to act fast and keep it a secret. And Virginia did want. Leonardo and Virginia agreed on a day to meet up to discuss the dates she'd be leaving and the details of her housing once she arrived in Florence. September 30th, 1940. Virginia came to Leonardo's house. I'll let Leonardo say this part in her own words. She ended up in the pot like the other two. Her flesh was fat and white. When it had melted, I added a bottle of cologne, and after a long time on the boil, I was able to make some most acceptable creamy soap. I gave bars to neighbors and acquaintances. The cakes, too, were better. That woman was really sweet. That really uh, makes me feel a certain way. Next time I get described as sweet, I'm going to really side-eye it. <laughs> that, oh my god, brings new meaning to the phrase sweet woman. Oh my sweet baby Jesus. Leonardo sold all of Virginia's clothes and shoes. She took 50,000 lire, all the jewels on her person, and any public bonds that she had on her. Little did Leonardo know, Virginia couldn't keep a secret worth a shit. She had blabbed to her sister-in-law, Alberta Fanti. Alberta knew that Virginia had walked into Leonardo's house and never walked out. She notified police that very night. 
The police began to investigate and found that Leonardo was not super careful in her cover-up of her crimes. They found bits and pieces of evidence everywhere. A blood splatter there, a bone fragment here, a witness or two who saw the victims going to her home. Leonardo was arrested. She maintained her innocence until the police started to suspect her son Giuseppe was involved in the murder. And then she confessed to all of it. She never apologized at her trial. She didn't seem the least bit remorseful. And in fact, she would actually would correct people during trial about like details that were irrelevant and just brutal and nasty. Like silly things, like what kind of ladle she used while she was cooking these people. She was sentenced to 30 years and she died in a criminal asylum on October 15th, 1970. And that is the gruesome story of the soap maker of Correggio. Are you scared? I am. Sources for this week include How Poverty Drives Violent Crime by OK Justice Reform, a Wikipedia article on Leonardo Gianciulli, and this, an article called The Correggio Soap Maker, an article called Sodium Get Rid of Dirt and Murder Victims by BBC News, and an article called A Copper Ladle. But don't take it for my words. That's sort of like what I meant to say. We're going to keep it. Uh, Check it out for yourself at the link in our show notes. If you have a scary story, email it to me at the horror comedy podcast, P-O-T-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. If uh, you send me a scary email, I'll most likely read it on the pod. We're on YouTube now also, which is fucking awesome. We don't usually cover true crime. I just thought this story was like super interesting and it happened so long ago that I don't feel like a disgusting scumbag for talking about it. I'm afraid. What if her ghost comes back to kill me because I'm being exploitive? I hope not. Anyway, don't forget to drink water.